Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. We'll be continuing with uh, discipleship. This morning we'll be addressing the beginnings of discipleship in the church. Now we've looked at in the past sort of the definition and terminology of discipleship. We've seen that in the New Testament, disciple is used as a noun 264 times, and it simply means a personal follower of Jesus Christ. Disciple is used as a verb only four times, and it simply means to make someone a personal follower of Jesus Christ. That's the extent of its meaning. So the term disciple occurs 268 times in the New Testament, but it only occurs in the Gospels and Acts. Just kind of a reminder of that. Sort of interesting, sort of strange. I'm still anticipating when we get to it in the epistles. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on things, but it's not until I really get there and start really thinking about it in detail and actually have to write things down that uh, I really feel myself anyway having some at least basic clarity. Disciple as a noun and a verb is a term that's right out of the New Testament. It's a Greek word, mathetes, mathetuo. But then we have in our Christian culture, particularly in America, perhaps around the world, we have this terminology that's really not in the Bible, but it is contemporary terminology. It's certainly seeking, I assume, and trying to reflect what's in the Bible, but that's our question, is does it? So there's discipleship, which would be the state or activity of being a follower of Christ, and then there's discipling, which usually in people's minds means some co- sort of dedicated process that is in, where you have, are involved with individuals to produce Christian character and behavior in them as a follower. Of Christ. That's just some of the terminology that's out there. We sort of were looking at the paradigm of Grandma's kitchen with her jars of ingredients, and in that paradigm, we've seen that uh, Christianity has Christian truths, Christian doctrines that can and do fall into categories that is a good way to look at it, not the only way, maybe not the best way, but it's a good way. And so we're just sort of looking at, well, there's jars, jars in which we put justification and sanctification, which are biblical terms, and then the sort of non-biblical, but certainly representing the biblical material of the doctrine of the Trinity. These are labels. They are good labels. But they must all be reducible to biblical terminology, to biblical statement, to biblical framework, because if that's not what we're putting in these jars, then what are the jars for? So jars have meaning, they have labels, and those labels must be meaningful. So when it comes to discipleship, what do we put in the jar of discipleship? It's got to be something meaningful, it's got to be biblical, it's got to be about being a disciple of Christ in some way or another. It can't remain vague or ill-defined, it certainly can't just take on a life of its own and sort of live out there as some doctrine that bounces around from place to place but really has no anchor or roots in Scripture. So again, whatever we put in this discipleship jar must be reducible to biblical terminology, to biblical statement, and to biblical framework if we're going to use it to live our lives by. Gave a brief definition of discipleship, a tentative definition. And again, this is not drawn from a Greek lexicon. The Greek lexicon can give you a bare definition of disciple, which maybe gets you started, but it's not all that helpful because we're not just following a person, we're following the person, Jesus Christ. And so discipleship is the state and activity of personally following Jesus Christ as divine Messiah, as the only Savior, as the risen Lord. These are the components in the New Testament. You have faith in him as he is these things, in himself and for us and to the universe. We're to follow him according to his word. We're to do this in the dynamic of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we are to do this in the context of a body of believers. 
Now, not everybody gets to have that context. Those that don't have it start to really treasure it probably more, more than those of us who might take it for granted. I do from time to time, and then I realize I can't take this for granted. I hope you feel the same. Now, we tried to look at the significance of discipleship, and we took a little bus tour around the Gospels a bit just to see what the Gospels have to say about it, and we sort of uh, got off that bus tour early because, well, I'm going to be continuing in the Gospels soon. But we did see that the, for the significance of discipleship that everything is at stake. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. If you're not following Jesus Christ according to his word, you're not a Christian. Everything is at stake. Your life, your soul, your day of judgment, and your eternity is engaged in this. So this is not an exercise. Looking at discipleship is not an exercise of some you know, theological clarification for some, I don't know, confession or something. This is a great reality. It's at the heart of who we are. Now we started to look at the context of discipleship. Okay, here's people who are following Jesus. Now what about the bigger picture? The bigger context. And as we're looking at the context, what I've been trying to do, some of you may not have noticed, but I've been trying to do as we've gone through things is to smell the roses along the way. That's why it's taken a bit longer than perhaps some would want or wish to address this subject because I just can't go through and say, well, here's a list of all things disciples. Here's, here's all the crazy out there. Don't do it. I mean, yeah, yeah, we could do that. <clears throat> but I want the richness of the scripture to be behind us. And so along the way, we've been smelling some of the roses. We'll be continuing to smell the roses. So we looked at Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, where there is the Great Commission. That Great Commission is repeated in Acts chapter 1 through 11, which is what we looked at last week from a different angle of the resurrection of Christ, but still same material. And when we look at the features from those four places, we see that the, the context for discipleship is going out into the world and presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to men and women and boys and girls, and there is reference to its Old Testament fulfillment, the testimony of the Old Testament. I was watching a uh, YouTube where uh, I think Alistair McGrath was debating an atheist, a fellow named Shermer or somebody like that. Anyway, he was saying how he was just you know, diminishing the Bible. Oh, it's just this. It's just a bunch of... I'm like, have you ever read the Old Testament, Mr. Shermer? Kind of hard to get around, you know, God uh, making things happen, empires being changed, Christ being crucified at an exact moment in history. That's kind of hard to do unless you're God. And so this testimony of the Old Testament to Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection is just absolutely negates all of their new atheism, their apologetics of modern scientific discovery that they consider infallible. An infallible scripture, Old Testament, that's our apologetic. There's a presentation of the messianic reign. There is a global proclamation to all nations. That proclamation will issue in the lives of some of true conversion. That means making a disciple making them followers of Jesus. That is both an initial event and an ongoing project in their own lives. There is baptism, there is teaching, and there is the Holy Spirit. Those are the things we see in that great commission. Well, today we're going to continue in Acts. We're going to continue with Acts chapter 2, 1 through 36. We're going to see how the great commission to disciple the nations how it's actually implemented in the early church. We see what was given, what Jesus said, here's your marching orders. And as I was reading those and thinking about those, I'm like, man, this is big. Where do you start? Well, Jesus said start in Jerusalem. I'm like, okay, I'll get started there. How do I do it? Well, Jesus showed you how to do it. He went around preaching. You need to do the same. 
It's a big task, but Jesus had actually prepared these men in so many ways for it. In Acts 1 through 11, there's the restatement of, again, of the Great Commission by Jesus, and then there is his actual ascension into heaven. The last half of Acts chapter 1 records that interim task of replacing Judas with Matthias. But now beginning in Acts chapter 2, 50 days later, there's this great historical, redemptive historical event, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that inaugurates the age of Messiah, the age of the Spirit, the new covenant. So why don't we pray this morning and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your throne and we are here reading one of the most thrilling chapters in the book of Acts, perhaps even in the Bible itself. Lord, we've read of Jesus going to the cross and that is the most gripping chapters in the Bible. To grip our hearts that that's where we should have been, but he went there for us instead 2,000 years ago before we were ever even born. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. But here in Acts, we see you going into heaven. And a few days later, we see you pouring out the Holy Spirit on people from every nation. With power, with clarity, with Old Testament fulfillment, with all the reality of a God who made the universe now redeeming those who he's made in his image. And giving us that greatest, greatest of gifts, On the basis of a forgiveness of sin, we have your own spirit in our lives, in our hearts. The spirit of adoption, crying, Abba, Father. And Lord, here that spirit is being poured out, and every time someone reads this, you've got to be there, just sitting on the edge of your seat, just wanting to just share the glory of it. And every time it's taught or every time it's preached, Lord, your heart is bound up in this. And so we pray this morning that we ask for that very spirit right now, his operations in our minds, in our hearts, the very spirit that we're reading being poured out on men and women and boys and girls. Lord, he would uh, just make this chapter alive to us and thrilling to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 36. Now, I knew when I bit this chunk off that it was a big chunk to bite. I was thinking of hippopotamuses that I think their their mouths can open 150 degrees or something like that, so you don't ever want to get in there. And uh, I think this is more than 150 degrees to chomp. I don't think a hippopotamus could, could chomp on this. So we'll go as far as we can. But just to sort of give a little, you know, get the, the mind working and thinking in the direction of this chapter, just sort of a, just a quick overview, a quick outline. The first two-thirds of this chapter have to do with an event, first of all, verses 1 through 13. An event occurs where the Holy Spirit is poured out. We read it. It's in detail. Just an amazing event. And then Peter stands up to interpret it because everybody's asking a question, hey, what's going on here? And so Peter stands up and just says this is coming from the prophet Joel. And he explains what that means. Quotes Joel. Then after he quotes Joel, he says you're going to have to understand some things that Joel is being fulfilled on the basis of something. God is not just pouring out his Holy Spirit because, oh, well, you know, it's... It's time to do it. God is pouring out his Holy Spirit because his son has died and has risen again. And his son has died at the hands of the very people Peter is preaching to. Could you imagine preaching to the audience of the people that had shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. If you've ever dealt with someone who has a guilty conscience, you know what that can be. I probably told the story because they're just so memorable and after 20 years you start telling your stories over again. 
They try to get new stories, but some of the oldies and goodies just still stick around. And I worked at a print shop with a man. And this was some, oh, I guess this was probably 1975, so he had been in the Vietnam War. In the Vietnam War on patrol, they were reconnoitering a village in the wee hours of the night. And just suddenly he came upon this woman, young woman, who was just out there, you know, probably getting some water or something for her family. And he was faced with the decision, it's her or it's the rest of us. And he had to kill her with his bare hands. And it wasn't pretty. And I tried to talk to this man about the gospel. And he'd give some of his reasons for not believing, but in the end, one day he really broke down and he said, the things I did when I was in war, God can never forgive me. I tried talking about the Apostle Paul, but he just couldn't hear it. The awfulness of his guilt so overshadowed and overwhelmed him, he couldn't hear Well, can you imagine talking to an audience that had just killed the Son of God? Can you imagine the guilt of that? So Peter's indictment of this crowd is important because it sets a stage for them to sober up and get real with God. And he makes some assertions about divine sovereignty and yet human culpability that are important. Then Peter moves on. Yes, you killed the Lord of glory, but God raised him from the dead and he just didn't raise him from the dead as some new thing. He raised him from the dead in fulfillment of a whole bunch of scriptures, accomplishing a whole bunch of things. You see, Jesus didn't, just didn't fill this, fulfill this scripture individually here and then this scripture individually there. I think, at least I used to have this sort of very uh, spotty view of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I just thought, well, yeah, there's, here's a passage here, there's a passage there, and, and you start to see what Peter does is he starts with Joel 2, and he weaves a whole set of scriptures together that together tell a story, not of just individual fulfillments, but of a consistent pursuance of the purposes of God in the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon that. So Peter stops, starts with Psalm 16, shows that the resurrection again isn't just invented by the, by the early church as Mr. Sherman wanted to say in his debate, this fulfillment of a scripture written a thousand years before. And then Peter goes on and he does some things that are really interesting. I hope you all can follow it because this shit's kind of basic. You might be a little bit befuddled at first, but Peter is, well, you know, first of all, he's talking to a Jewish audience. So if he was talking to Gentiles, they wouldn't have a clue what he was saying. If he's talking to people who didn't know the Old Testament, you, you, you would sort of somewhat be lost. But most of us here, if not all of us here, are familiar with the Bible. We're familiar with the Old Testament enough to follow Peter's method of interpretation. Peter shows us in Joel 2 how to interpret the Old Testament. He shows us in Psalm 16 how to interpret the Old Testament. And he shows us out of 2 Samuel 7 how to arrive there through just some simple deduction of Old Testament promise and New Testament realities surrounding it. So it's it's very interesting. But in the end, he shows that Jesus Christ not only rose from the dead, but that his resurrection from the dead fulfills the Davidic covenant. Now that could be a contentious issue with some in our day. There are whole theologies, whole systems of theology based on 
a perspective that wants to put the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant off into the future, to a future era, a future millennium. But as we shall see, that's not where, Paul, where Peter puts it. He puts it in the here and now, and he puts it as foundational to the gospel of Christ. Eschatology is not secondary to Christian truth. It is primary, and you see it over and over and over again. Peter then makes a bold declaration based on what he said. There's this culminating declaration of a resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. And he finalizes, finishes things up with a quote from Psalm 110. And so if you're looking at this list, look at how Peter pursues the first sermon ever preached after the resurrection. This is the content. This is what belongs to all gospel preaching, ultimately. This is the preaching that fulfills the Great Commission. So let's start looking at it. Let's look at the event. There's been this incredible event that's happened. It's on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was one of the seven Jewish feasts presented in Leviticus 23, so it's an Old Testament background issue. It's a harvest feast, and this particular harvest feast is mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament, and it's mentioned so many times in so many contexts in so many almost different ways, it becomes a real head-scratcher to figure out the feasts. So you, gotta, you have to spend some time on it. <clears throat> I spent some time on it. I'm not sure I figured it all out. The day of Pentecost, you can read in Exodus 23 some of the simpler passages. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast unto me. Again, there's going to be more than these three feasts, but these three feasts have a, they share a common uh, feature, which is why they're sort of lumped together, actually features. Three times a year you're going to celebrate a feast to me, and three times a year all your males are going to appear before the Lord your God. God says, wherever I place my name ultimately in the land of Canaan, which became Jerusalem, that's where you're going to come up, all the males of all the land of Canaan that I've given you, three times a year they're going to come up to Jerusalem and celebrate, well, three feasts. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this occurs right over the Passover. It's sort of in conjunction with the Passover. So there's the Passover and then there's the, the seven-day Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, with the Passover occurs in early spring with the barley harvest. Now, I'm not a farmer. So, you know, for me, you know, food grows in the grocery store, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I know, I might be in trouble one day, but not today. But apparently barley, kind of you plant it early and it grows up early and you start harvesting it early. And so there's this, around the Passover, there's this thing, and I don't want to confuse you because the, the terminology can get confusing, but... So just, just hide what it says there in Exodus for a second. They called it the Feast of First Fruits. Apparently it got so confusing, they finally said, look, we're going to take the, the Feast of Pentecost is going to happen 50 days after the Passover. But in reality, when it's presented, it's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which had to do with the barley harvest. So there's this Feast of Harvest that's pretty much at the same time as the Passover. So we can just sort of, you know, just go, okay, we'll conflate it. There's the Passover, 50 days later, there's the Feast of Harvest. You bring the fruit of your labors. Hey, this is this first fruit of, you know, your sowing and crops growing in your fields. Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Harvest, and there's the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the agricultural year. This is an agricultural economy. Everybody lives by the fields around their houses. That's where they get their food. So there are these three feasts. You can, 
Again, you can read in Deuteronomy 16, three times a year will your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. Three feasts, and here they have a little bit different name, which in, it's, that's why it takes a little bit to track things down. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's the Feast of Weeks, which was called the Feast of Harvest in Deuteronomy. And there's the Feast of Booths, which was called the Feast of Ingathering. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. But there are these three feasts. And again, you've got to come before the Lord. You have to bring the fruit of the harvests. Each one of these is a harvest feast. The unleavened bread is barley. Feast of weeks is wheat. And the feast of booths is olives. And I think grapes, yeah. And so you bring this fruit of that particular harvest with you when you come to Jerusalem. And you give it to God and you acknowledge before the Lord that you are enjoying this goodness because he gave you the land. He brought you out of the land of Egypt and bondage and brought you into this good land, an Old Testament big broad picture of us being saved from sin and death into a new heavens and a new earth. So here are these three harvest feasts. There's unleavened bread, barley in the early spring, the harvest, feast of harvest or feast of weeks. It's a wheat harvest in late spring and then there's the final Feast of ingathering or booths or tabernacles of olives and grapes and happens in the fall. And it's these three feasts where people had to appear before the Lord. And Pentecost is that feast of weeks. And it's the 50th. Pentecost means 50th because it's the 50th day from the Passover. So that's sort of the background of the day of Pentecost. And Luke records, when the day of Pentecost had come, it had arrived, all the preparations had been made, all the anticipation has been made, and the actual day for celebrating the feast has come. Now, remember, what did you have to do on this feast? What was peculiar about this feast, shared with the other two harvest feasts? You had to go to Jerusalem, if you were a male. I'm pretty sure all, you know, a lot of the women went, brought the fam, but if you were a male, you had to go there. And so Jerusalem would have how many people at it, in it, at the Feast of Pentecost? Yeah. Well, they uh, estimate that when Jerusalem fell when Ju- in 70 AD, when Jerusalem fell to the Romans, it was during this time of Pentecost that, that, the, that the city uh, was surrounded, and they estimated there were two million people in the city at that time. So this place is full of a bunch of people. This was Atlanta, you know very small area of the country, hoping that they had planned their roads out better than perhaps Atlanta had. So Jerusalem is full of pilgrims, and the thing is also they're from all over the world. And so this day of Pentecost comes, this event which inaugurates a new era in the history of the human race. This is as significant, in a sense, as the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. They are part of a whole. Jesus dies, Jesus rises, Jesus ascends, Jesus pours out the Spirit. This is one transaction. And the eschatological age of the Spirit has begun. This is an amazing event that we're watching here. What was the identity of those who were involved? And it's sort of vague. It says, you know, the Feast of Pentecost had come, the day of Pentecost, and they, whoever they are, were all together in one place. Now, so far in Acts, we've had several groups of people enumerated. In Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14, there's the 11 apostles, there's the women, there's Mary, there's the brethren of Jesus, And they're all together in an upper room. So that might number, what, 30 people? Maybe more? In Acts 1.15, it says that there are 120 gathered together in an upper room. At least we assume it was an upper room. But they were gathered together. Then in Acts chapter 1.14 and 37, we have... In New, or actually 2, 14 and 37, we have 11 apostles named. In other words, during the sermon of Peter, both during and after, the only people really referred to are the 11 apostles. Doesn't rule out others. 
But it does make it a little challenging when it says, well, who was together in this place? Was it the people who were, uh, you know, in the upper room at first in Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14? Was it the 120 in one place? Was it just the 11? You don't really know. People have opinions, give opinions, and they, they recognize that it's an opinion. I don't really have an opinion because I really wouldn't know what to say in this. If you all have a good opinion, let me know. Got something that'll persuade me. But whoever the all is, they were together. They were in one place. And there had to be enough of them to accomplish what we're about to read. And by the way, they were in a house and they were sitting. Okay? They weren't in the temple, but they were probably most likely praying because that is what is said about them in chapter 1. Sitting and praying, when you're praying all day, you're usually probably going to take some time out, get up, walk around, get the blood flowing. But then something happened. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There came from heaven. Did we just see somebody go into heaven a few verses before? Did we not see Jesus going into heaven, an amazing sight? Back then, they wouldn't have known all the issues involved in getting past those clouds. They knew nothing of a stratosphere. They knew nothing of the emptiness of space or the relative emptiness of space and minus 200 degree places. Oxygen, they didn't know anything about that, but they saw Jesus go. And there were angels saying, hey, he's going to come back the same way. And so out of heaven, the same place where Jesus had come from, there was a noise like a violent rushing wind. How many of you have been watching tornado videos the past few weeks? Yeah, and you hear that roar, right? I think that's what they're getting at. This low roar of a violent rushing wind. Now, it actually wasn't windy in there. I mean, things weren't blowing around. They weren't, you know, grabbing for their notes and coffee cups, getting blown off tables. That wasn't, wasn't, wasn't what was happening. But there was this roaring noise from heaven. All right. It fills the house. I mean, the whole house, and this is going to be a big house. There's probably a lot of people there, as we're going to see. fills the house. And then suddenly, it says suddenly. How long have they been praying? Now, anybody that engages in some long-term prayer, okay, I'm going to pray, to pray today for an hour. I was just watching a video on how time actually goes fast or slow depending on your engagement and things. And sometimes when the Lord is with you, the hour is five minutes. Sometimes when the Lord, well, just isn't so present with you, how long is an hour? You start talking to Einstein and his theory of relativity because time gets all, it's just hard, laborious work, isn't it? They had been praying for days. That was hard work. They were laboring in prayer, as the scriptures say. And when you're laboring in prayer, and here it's a, a late, late spring day, I don't know what the temperature might be, but it might be dull. There might be some bugs. They didn't have bug spray. They didn't have deep. And there they are praying. And they're probably thinking, like most of us would think, are my prayers getting anywhere? Is this really going to move God? I mean, doesn't he already know all these things already? They were laboring in prayer. It was probably, for the most part, a mundane thing because, remember, the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. They had faith, and they were determined to pray, and suddenly, God answers. How many of you have experienced that in your life? 
God's not hearing you. God's not hearing you. Prayers, if you're doing well, might make it past the lampshade, maybe up to the ceiling. And then God answers. Suddenly. There's been some things in in recent months that I've just sort of observed where I've been praying for some things for really several years. And as usually happens, you kind of stop and look back and you realize, yep, God has answered those prayers. And that answer is rock solid. And that answer is permanent. In this case, the answer was Gosh, far exceeded any expectation they could have ever had. Here they are praying. Is the Lord going to show up? Is, you know, the Lord said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. It's been, you know, nine days now. What's happening? Ten days. And suddenly, the place is filled. Fills the whole house where they were sitting. God showed I remember when we were first trying to have a Bible study at my house, the year 2000. If you had gone to the first Bible study, you would have written us off and said, this is the most hopeless case that we could ever, haven't ever seen, that we could ever even imagine seeing. The first Bible study in my house had to be the worst Bible study in the history of the church. If it wasn't, then the winner of that title was really bad off. That's all I can say. Gwen and I had a biggest fight of our whole marriage in front of her parents. Right out there, in front of everything. Gwen can tell you more stories about it. She can tell you who was right and who was wrong. I won't go there myself. Just didn't seem like much, but... There's another brother that I had been praying with for a number of months before and just not a lot, not like these folks in one place for, you know, all day long, but we spent a number of evenings together for an hour or two just before the Lord praying and we really didn't know what we were praying for. We were just praying that the Lord would show up in our lives and would do a work. And when we were praying, there were some intense times of prayer, but the second Bible study was better than the first, and the third one better than the second. And before you knew it, 30 people were showing up at our house. Next thing we knew, 50. Next thing after that, 70, then 90, then 100, then 110. And it went on for five years. God answered, and it was out of heaven. Suddenly there came from heaven. As a church here, we are praying about many things. We got several irons in the fire, more irons than we had years, before, years ago. And we're glad for those irons in the fire. As a small church with very limited resources, I think we're doing pretty well, but we want to put some more irons in the fire. They're not in it yet, but we've got to say, Lord, when can we put these irons in the fire? All different situations, some of them difficult situations, some of them good situations. And we're praying. You all are praying. We put them out there and you all pray. You pray in individual ways. You know things in your accountability groups. Just keep on praying. And one day, God will suddenly show up. And when he does... I remember, I just remember the Bible study we had for five years. I'd go in there, open the Bible, and just read three words, and man, everybody, it was just overwhelming. I was overwhelmed. Everybody was, God was just so there. Everything was golden. Everything was glorious. Everything was powerful. When God shows up, things happen in a way you can't imagine. Unto him who is able to Answer your prayers above what you could ever ask or think. Be the glory forever.
Well, there appeared to them tongues as fire distributing themselves. That is, the tongues were distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. Now, you can go on on the internet. I'll do it. Just images of, you know, Acts chapter 2, images of Pentecost. And there's all kinds of artistic, I think, well done. I mean, way better than I could ever do. I might be able to do stick figures and a little over the tops of their heads. But just well done pictures trying to, from all different angles, say, what did this look like? You know? There were tongues of fires distributing themselves. That is, the, there was this one, I guess, fire coming down is the picture and then distributing itself among the individuals. All right. And it rested, it stayed there. It wasn't just back and forth, you know, it wasn't dancing. It was just there. And it rested on each one of them. So there's an audible manifestation of the Holy Spirit, a rushing wind roaring like a tornado. And then there's this visible manifestation of the Spirit. This description as tongues of fire. It's distributed and remains on each one, on each individual. And so what we see here as the Holy Spirit comes upon these people, we really get a visible picture of what the body of Christ is, what we are right here. Each individual here has to personally participate in the salvation of the Lord. You have an individual responsibility. You have a personal responsibility and privilege to be in Christ, to believe on him, to follow him as a disciple, to have the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. But it's not just you and Jesus, is it? Just like it wasn't Peter or James or John and Jesus. It was one Holy Spirit individually resting, but it was a common representation, a common collective experience of the Holy Spirit of God. So while all of us have an individual participation in Christ, our participation is in one sense not unique. It's the same Holy Spirit doing the same holy work. The same characteristics, the same purposes. It appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now they were tongues of fire. Was it really fire? I don't think so. But here's some things to think about. Did the Holy Spirit ever descend from heaven on anyone prior to this? Jesus, right? River Jordan. What was the representation of the Holy Spirit, the visible representation, when it came down on Jesus? A dove. Characterized him, the Prince of Peace, and probably a lot of other things. But it came on him as a dove. How come it's coming here as fire. What in the world's going on? <laughs> Fired up. There you go. That's a good one. I'll write that one down. Well, like anything and everything here, we're in a section that may not seem like it's just rooted in the Old Testament all over the place, but it is. Is there a place in the Old Testament where you see God appearing in a manifestation of fire? Exodus chapter 3, 2 through 5, Moses, the burning bush. Yahweh speaking out of that bush, saying, I am. What about Mount Sinai? When God appeared on Mount Sinai, what was there? What was the manifestation? Fire. Okay. It says it's like fire. It doesn't say it is fire, but it says it's like fire. 
What about the tabernacle in Exodus 40? We went over that in Sunday school. What happened when they did everything according to the word of the Lord? They finished the tabernacle, got it all set up, just like God had told them. What happened? God descends. And so it's not really a physical fire because it didn't burn up the bush. But fire is representative of the glory, the personal manifestation and glory of God. And when they finished the tabernacle, that picture of the redemption of God in Christ, when they finally finished it, God inaugurated things by showing up as if it was a fire. And there was that pillar of cloud and fire then that followed them for 40 years. What about the temple? Anybody remember what happened in the temple when Solomon had the temple built, was just the tabernacle on steroids. What happened when it was all done and he was done with his dedication speech? If you think some of our sermons are long, you would have needed lunch and a few other snacks for Solomon's dedication. It was a long one. But when he was done, and it's not recorded in 1 Kings, I used to think it was, but it's recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. What happens? After Solomon finishes the dedication, fire. God's glory fills the temple. So you have this continuity, this consistency of God appearing, his personal manifestation of glory, appearing with his people. God inhabiting and dwelling among his people. Now that first temple was destroyed and they came back, Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. And what happened when they finished rebuilding the temple? There were all the prophecies about the temple and everything. So what happened? Second temple, they call it. Second temple Judaism. Nothing. Because that temple was not the fulfillment of the prophecies that ultimately underlie the gospel of God and his Christ. The next place you see the Holy Spirit inhabiting a person, inhabiting humans, is at the River Jordan and the Dove. And then the next place you see God coming upon people where his glory sets upon them is right here in Acts. This picture is an amazing picture and we should treasure it. God is telling us that every person who gets the Holy Spirit is part of this. For the last 2,000 years, you have been part of this. You are an expression of this. God is dwelling among his people and that's why Paul can write in his letters that we are the temple of the living God, both individually and collectively. Because we are a fulfillment of this continuity of the history of redemption that culminates in Jesus Christ and God dwelling with his people. Well, is this the last place in the Bible we see God manifesting his glory with his people? Is there another place in Scripture where we read of this glory dwelling and his saints. Revelation 22. They have no need of light of moon or light of sun. For the Lord God shall give them light. So this reality of the Holy Spirit coming in a manifestation on people. Is absolutely a fulfillment of a redemptive historical process leading to its culmination in Jesus Christ. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There's there's no suspense what this was. This is the Holy Spirit filling the hearts and lives of human beings. Think about that. The God who made the universe. Everybody disputes how big it is, but it's way bigger than we can imagine. The God who made that universe dwells in our hearts. 
was watching that poor man, Sherman, with all of his knowledge, debating Alistair McGrath, confidently asserting there was no God, thinking, what will this man do in the day of judgment when all of a sudden he understands that he has traded in the God of the universe for his own vanity? What will he do? We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. Grieve not that Holy Spirit. Do not grieve him. He can be grieved. The Holy Spirit does not like to dwell around certain things. He doesn't like anger. He doesn't like divisiveness. He doesn't like bitterness. He doesn't like gossip. He doesn't like those things. And you do those things or you cultivate those things or you allow those things to be in the soil of your heart and the Holy Spirit will withdraw big time. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Understand who you are as a Christian. You as an individual, the God of the universe has chosen you and he dwells in you. Don't worry about your bank account. Don't worry about your circumstances. You are a child of the living God, and he dwells in you. And you think, gosh, is God going to be able to really raise me from the dead? Does he even want to, the wretched thing that I am? When you go to a bank, some of you are trying to buy houses or are buying houses or have done so recently, and you go to the bank and the bank says, okay, we're going to lend you X dollars. And then you're going to pay us back so much money. But for good faith, we want a down payment. We want you to put some money down as a guarantee that you're really interested and you're really invested in this house. And then you can pay it off after 500 years or however long it is these days. And, you know, buy a $300,000 house for $2 million. However they work it out, at least you got a house. But that money you put down is the guarantee money, the earnest money, and that's the same terminology used in Ephesians, that the Holy Spirit is the down payment in our life. That Jesus is going to bring us to heaven. That we're going to get there. And then he's going to fashion anew these mortal bodies and make them like his own body. He's going to do it. You have the down payment. You have the guarantee. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit had been with these disciples for a long time, doing things in their lives. Hey, flesh and blood reveals to Peter that Jesus is the Christ. No one can know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Spirit had been with them in a temporary way, but with powerful influences. And that's even stated in John chapter 14, verse 7. You can read, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit has been with you. But in that day, meaning the day of Pentecost, he will be in you. And he goes on to say in John 14, 16, he will be with you forever. Sometimes if you're like me and you see your own rotten heart and you're just like, man, it's more rotten than it was the day before. I thought I was getting better, not worse. And you secretly start thinking, can Jesus really save me from this wretchedness? Can he really do it? And then you start thinking, well, maybe he can, but who would want to? I don't want to live with me. How come the Lord wants to live with me? It's forever, my brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit isn't just with us like he was with the disciples before the day of Pentecost. He is in us, and he is in us forever. This is the new birth from above. This is the spirit of adoption. This is the beginning of Christianity. This is how it begins in every human heart. Every disciple begins here. 
Now, there will be subsequent fillings throughout our Christian experience. Some will have more than others. But this initial filling, this initial indwelling of the Spirit is unique to all of us because we only get born again once. Because that's all you need. I know sometimes folks, particularly in situations where there's altar calls and things like that, which are fine, I guess. We don't do it. But they have some doubts, some doubts in their Christian life and they hear an emotional message and they'll come down again to get saved again. And we, in our theology, will say, well, that's not true, but how many of you feel that way? Come on, how many of you be honest? You know it's not true, but you feel that way. You feel like, gosh, you know, I just need to be saved again because I am in a wretched state because I see my own heart. It's not because you're robbing banks or killing people. It's because you see your own heart just having bad thoughts, meanness. The Holy Spirit is now filtered down into our lives where it's the little things that he's dealing with and those little things look as bad as bank robbery any day of the week, don't they? The Holy Spirit, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down to dwell with sinners and he comes down to dwell with us. Now they began to speak with other tongues and oh boy, doesn't this conjure up a bunch of stuff, right? Man, I lived in this for 10 years. I was in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. I didn't realize it that Jamie Buckingham uh, was a big dude in his day. I know that you probably don't even know who he is. Who would be an important person in the charismatic movement today? I, I don't even know. I don't keep up with it. But it would, he was that kind of a person. And we went to the church where he was. We called it Buckingham's Palace. But there we were. That's all I knew. I didn't know Christianity was anything other than this because that's all I knew of Christianity. I got saved in it and that's all I knew. And of course, when you're in Pentecostalism, the great deal is to have the, you know, the nine gifts of the Spirit dangling from your fingertips. Your measure of spirituality is, did you prophesy today? Did you have a dream? Did you have a vision? Unfortunately, that kind of vanity exists. It exists in the Baptist church, too. It just doesn't take, take on the gifts of the Spirit. It's other things. Vanity is not isolated to the charismatic movement. But these folks here, they didn't know anything about the charismatic, they hadn't heard of the charismatic movement, they hadn't heard of Pentecostalism, even though it was the day of Pentecost. This is a new and unique phenomenon in the church. These are people speaking with other tongues. Now let's notice what the characteristics are. They spoke with other tongues, that is, tongues other than their own native tongue. And you can pretty much assume it was tongues that they didn't know. It wasn't like, okay, well, my native language is English, but now I'm going to speak Spanish. No, this was, we start to find out these are, what they're speaking are native dialects specific to little areas of regions. These were tongues, though, that were known to the audience, as we will see, but they were unknown to the speaker. And so this certainly, and I have had my debates, I left the charismatic movement. I mean, I started leaving the charismatic movement long before I did. I was having debates the whole time because they would tell me something at first. I'd read the Bible, I'd hear something about this or that, and I'd read the Bible and I'd go, oh, okay, I must be wrong. The Bible isn't saying what I'm thinking, it must be saying what they're saying. Okay, then you, you all maybe have gone through that. You know, who am I? I? I don't know the Bible. These guys are, when you're first a Christian, everybody's really up there. Everybody's a pope, a cardinal, or whatever you want to think of. But then you start getting a little maturity under your belt, a little bit of experience under your belt, and start realizing, well, no, maybe what they're saying and what the Bible's saying are two different things, and I think they're wrong. Then you one day mistakenly bring it up, thinking they'll be glad to hear it. And then you start finding out, ah, we're in a spiritual war. And all those fellows up front were in the charismatic movement, all the women up front, part their hair right, paint their fingernails correct, smile, 
and say nice things from the pulpit, but you find out differently behind the scenes. Because the truth of the gospel begins to separate and show who is for the Lord and who isn't. So I began to wonder, well, what are they talking about? One of the big deals was is they would say, if you're going to be a Christian and if you're going to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a whole other world we won't go into, then you have to speak in tongues. See, Acts, look at Acts. So finally, one day I'm reading, I'm going, well, wait a minute. These are not the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. These are not unknown tongues. They might have been unknown to the speaker, but they were surely known to the audience. And, well, in a minute, we'll see what the content was. They began to speak with other tongues. This is a unique situation, and the Spirit is giving them utterance. And what we have to be careful with conservatives, we've got to be careful we don't throw some things away. It's an interesting study. I haven't had a chance to do it. I mean, I've studied it in the Scripture, but I haven't had a chance to make a map. Um, but if you make a map and you go through the New Testament, and you go, okay, where are all the places? We'll stick a pin in the map for every place that says they were speaking in tongues and doing miracles that what was going on here was going on in the church. And you find yourself going, oh, well, you know, certainly Jerusalem gets a pin in it. And, oh, wait a minute, the churches of Galatia get a pin in it because Paul says, who, you know, who supplies you the Spirit and works miracles among you. And then you go, well, you know, Corinth, man, that gets 10 pins in it. And, oh, wait a minute, Thessalonica. Don't despise prophesying. Don't forbid to speak with tongues. You got to stick a pen there. And then you find out Cyprus, well, you got to stick a pen there. And then you find out Paul says, hey, you know, when I'm on my last missionary journey and I'm on my way back to Jerusalem, in every city the Holy Spirit testifies to me that bonds and afflictions await me in Jerusalem. So you got to go, okay, where did Paul go? Pin, 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 pin. And you start realizing, ooh, this gifts of the Spirit thing wasn't just isolated to Corinth. Now, at Corinth, they were the modern-day charismatic movement, wacky, off-the-rails, crazy. Thessalonica were the modern-day conservative movement. No, no gifts of the Spirit, no, no speaking in tongues. And Paul had to tell them, no. Don't you forbid to speak with tongues. Don't do it. So as conservatives, we probably need to clean up our act a bit and start doing the whole counsel of God like we glory in and stop just saying it's just for the apostles because those pins are for regular Christian people doing this, not apostles. Someone says, well, Steve, are you about to take this church in the charismatic movement again? No, I've been there. I'm never going back there. They gave me the right foot of fellowship and I was happy for it. But my brothers and sisters, let's, let's believe the whole counsel of God. Most of you here, you know who we are. We're not bouncing off the walls. We're not swinging from chandeliers. But the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. There was a prophetic dynamic at work. This is not teaching. This is not preaching. As we'll see later, they are the content of their words are the mighty acts of God. And that was the problem with the charismatic movement. It wasn't that they were speaking in tongues. I mean, that's, most of it was just out of immaturity. <clears throat> later on, you talk to the folks when they grow up, they say, yeah, we were just doing it because everybody else was. But not all of it. I was there for some, some genuine people, some people whose hands I'm going to shake first, first First person's hand I'm going to shake when I get in new heavens and new earth and we start getting reintroduced is a charismatic brother who spoke in tongues profusely. And he had more impact on my life than any other Christian. He taught me to love Jesus Christ first and foremost. And he taught me to stick with the scriptures. You wouldn't think that from a Pentecostal, would you? That's what he taught me. There's a prophetic dynamic at work, and we cannot quench that. For some, this may be disturbing. For some, it might be, well, Steve, you know, how do you work this all out? Well, talk to me. I'll show you. 
I went through it for an hour once, uh, some, some months ago, with a actually very significant individual here in town. I won't give the person's name. But after we were done, after about an hour of talking, like, okay, we need to talk about this some more. Total interest, because they totally started to recognize, as we're going to see in Joel, to say that the gifts of the Spirit are done away because the apostles lift is just, no. The prophet Joel says, the gifts are around until there's blood and fire and vapor and smoke and the great and magnificent day of the Lord. So these are the gifts of the Spirit. But here, it's prophecy. It's speaking forth the mighty works of God. Well, our time is up, <clears throat> so we'll pick up in verse 5, Lord willing, next week, like I said. Going to smell some roses along the way. If you have some questions about what I'm saying in either direction, come and talk to me. And we will follow the Lord in his word. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to uh, your throne again and we thank you for this Holy Spirit that you've given us, that he's dynamic, that he's real, he's powerful. He breaks the power of sin in our life. He brings the power of Christ's death and resurrection into our life. Lord, he brings the love of God in our life. He brings the joy of our salvation into our life. He brings faith and truth and wisdom and knowledge and hope. Lord, he brings self-control. He brings faithfulness. He brings peace. And Lord, just pray that we would have this Holy Spirit in great measure, each of us individually, and all of us together. All of us together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.